morning, Sound City. Here is the word of the Lord from 2 Thessalonians 3, 1 through 5. In addition, brothers and sisters, pray for us that the word of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored just as it was with you and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil people for not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will strengthen and guard you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. May, may the Lord direct your hearts to God's love and Christ's endurance. Thank you, Peter. Morning, everybody. Good to see you here today. I am uh, Rabbi Matt, and <laughs> just kidding, I am no rabbi. Um, but uh, yeah, my name is John Fox, I'm one of the pastors here, and last week when we had Pastor Myung preaching, he had said that we're going to have a good friend of ours that has preached many times, Rabbi Matt, come and uh, teach for us in this series, and unfortunately, he's not able to make it today, so you're stuck with me. And uh, you feel free afterward, like the other 10 people this morning, to say, oh, you're preaching. So... <laughs> I get it. I'm disappointed. Rabbi Matt is not here either. So, um, but um, the reason Rabbi Matt's not here, we can just pray here in a second. Pray for him is because he has recently, if you haven't heard, been diagnosed with a form of leukemia, and um, that's a certainly a big blow to him, big blow to his family and and church. Um, so we want to pray for him. The good news, as far as we can tell, is that. Um, it is a treatable form of leukemia, and uh, his doctors are optimistic, and he's optimistic. But um, regardless, that is still a whole lot to go through, and um, none of us knows each day from the next what the Lord is going to do, so we definitely want to pray for him, and um, I invite you to pray along with me this morning as before we get into the text, and um, and have him in mind as maybe even as we go through this sermon here. Let's pray. Father, we uh, do come before you and we pray for our brother, Rabbi Matt. God, we thank you for him so much in the great um, ministry that he has, great friend that he is. And Lord, we ask that as he undergoes treatment for cancer, God, that you would, you would bless him, that uh, you would heal him, that it would be uh, unexpected, maybe even unexplained, and restore his health. And uh, even if that's not the case, Lord, we do pray that you would give him good judgment, discernment, counsel, wisdom, God, that the doctors that he has treating him would be um, very attentive and knowledgeable, and that all of the prescriptions and everything else that he needs would be able to be figured out. And we pray for their family, God, that this would be something that draws them together, and most importantly, that um, draws them to you. We know that suffering is inevitable, Lord, but you are faithful, God. So we ask that you would uh, be with them in this difficult time. In your son's name, amen. Well, this morning, we talk about persecution. 
And our passage that uh, we're continuing in on this morning is 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. Real short today, just five verses, so I'll be sure to be shorter than me young, <laughs> which is impossible, actually, so I'm not going to do that. Uh, that he set a new world record last week, I think. Uh, but he did a great job, so it's really good. Uh, this week, though, our passage continues on in encouragement where Paul is talking to a church in the ancient world, and he says, I know you're experiencing a lot of things right now, a lot of persecution, a lot of difficulties. Let me encourage you for the second time. So he writes a second letter. And there are other things going on uh, that he addresses that are not good, and we'll get to that next week. And I'm preaching next week as well, so um, I have good continuity here. This week, again, is the encouraging week. Okay, next week, come prepared. Okay, <laughs> come prepared. That's all I'm going to say about next week. But along this idea of persecution that Paul brings up here, um, what we see is that um, persecution is something that happens in different forms. When we think of the word or the idea of persecution, Uh, for your faith, believers in Jesus in particular, we think of these kind of far-cast ideas of, well, on the other side of the world, you know, maybe a house church in China, uh, the government taking your home, uh, some kind of physical consequence. Maybe you are imprisoned. Maybe you're beaten. Maybe you were crucified like early Christians. And we naturally go to these kind of extreme examples, and they are examples for sure. But uh, persecution for believing in Jesus happens on many different levels and in different ways. And they were happening in different ways for the uh, believers in Thessalonica as well. And so I think there's a lot of um, pertinence with the passage here this morning for us. Uh, So before we go any further, let's just think about some ways, perhaps, that maybe you face persecution as a believer here today in America. Again, on a lighter scale, perhaps, but still on the scale. Bill 5395, same year that uh, we moved up here from Texas, a sex education bill for public school kids. Now, I'm not saying that this legislation is entirely bad, um, but uh, this bill did introduce sex education into public schools mandatorily. And uh, now Christians in public schools have to think about this carefully, don't we? We have to think about how this affects our kids. We have to think about how this affects their development and discipleship. We have to think about um, the kind of uh, indoctrination that not just normally happens in schools, indoctrination happens everywhere, but uh, when it comes to sexuality in particular. And uh, I know of many people... You know of many people that said, this is not conscionable for us if we're supposed to be the ones who are caring for our kids and we have to figure out some other option. Maybe that option is, according to the uh, rules, that you just say, I'm going to write an excuse for an absence. I don't want my kid to be a part of that. Maybe you take your kid out of school. And not everybody agrees with that. Not everybody holds that position. And so there is some form of backlash. Why would you Christians do that? Or we have here recently um, uh, Pride Month. We also have 
gender pronoun usage these days that is prolific. 57 plus genders are available as options today. Many of them as uh, signs off on you know, emails or communication. SPU, a local college, a uh, religious college, faced, faced lawsuits last year related to uh, their traditional Christian views for marriage and sexuality. They have a policy, a life, lifestyle policy, in which they say in order to teach at this school or be a faculty member, a staff, you need to hold to a traditional view of biblical sexuality. And that is going to mean uh, no cohabitation, no extramarital sexual activity, or same-sex sexual activity. And the school, having operated for many years on this way, like many other higher education Christian campuses, then faced a tremendous backlash, lawsuits, and it's still ongoing. Or maybe it's something just more ethereal or in the air, something that you've heard the phrase, silence is violence. Or in particular, it's kind of morphed into toxic silence. The idea that if you are not speaking up for those who are oppressed in somebody's idea, then you're actually doing evil. You're doing harm. And this idea is related to a number of issues. It could be uh, sexual revolution issues. It could be racial justice or injustice issues. But the idea of silence is violence or toxic silence is that you are not speaking up and you are not affirming these values. And Christians have to, at some point, say, we have different values. We have values that we get from God because we get them from the Bible. And we even saw this in the last book here, the last letter, 1 Thessalonians. This is the will of God for you, your sanctification, that you know how to control your body, not in sexual immorality. So Christians are forced, forced to have to deal with these issues when the world says, this is our value. This is the way that things need to be. This is how you need to live. And Christians have to say, but God says different. What do I do? The Thessalonians, just like us, had issues in their day that Paul is writing about. And they might be a little bit different, but they're still very present. For Paul and the Thessalonians, so much of what they encountered was related to worship, civil worship. There's one government. There's one emperor, Caesar. And he is a god. And everyone must worship him as god. Everybody must bow the knee to Caesar. Caesar is curios, lord. But then the New Testament Christians come and they say, Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. And there is, of course, persecution for these kinds of actions. Now today, with that in mind, what I want to do is present to you a main point that I believe that this passage of text gives us. And again, this is an encouragement text. Okay, Next week's the rough one. The encouragement text here is going to give us this main point, which is that Christians will experience persecution, but 
endure them through Jesus. Christians will experience persecution, but endure them through Jesus. And there are three kind of ways that we can talk about it in the text today that, uh, that Paul gives us as an encouragement. Three different areas that we can focus on. Number one is pray. Very simple. Number two is to hear. And number three, uh, or to know, and number three is to endure. So generally, there are things that Paul says, and we'll just take them under those headings. In the first section here, he says, in addition, brothers and sisters, pray for us that the word of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored just as it was with you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil people, for not all have faith. Paul here says, what I want you to do in the midst of this persecution is pray. And the beautiful thing about his example is he doesn't say, here's what you should pray. Rather, he models humility and he says, pray for us. Now, Paul, if you haven't read the New Testament or Acts in particular, Acts 17 is kind of the birthing place of this Thessalonica church. Um, But he comes and says, we've experienced so much suffering, so much persecution. Paul literally had rocks thrown at him. So much And so many cities that one time they thought they did it. They thought they finished them off. And then he gets up and walks back into the city the same day. What a man. Paul knows something of persecution here for Jesus. And so he's going to say, pray for us. Us is going to be him. It's going to be Barnabas. It's going to be Silas. It's going to be his companions. Pray for us. Now, I'm struck by that at first because out of anybody, I would look to Paul in the New Testament to say, dude, you got this, man, right? PhD, best theological mind of his time. Paul says, pray for us. We need it. We desperately need your prayers. And he'll say, pray three things. Number one, the word of the Lord may spread rapidly. So when we think about persecution, The first thing that we see is we need to pray. And the first thing that we need to pray is that the word of the Lord may spread rapidly. This idea of rapidly is actually, uh, you could translate the word of the word uh, run. That Paul wants God's word to run, go as quickly as it can so that everybody, every age, every ethnic background, every person would hear this good news. Jesus, the Christ suffered, died, rose from the grave, life everlasting for all who believe in him. It is core, it is central to his life and to his teaching, and it is clearly here central to the Thessalonians as well. Now, something that we've talked about very lightly so far about the Thessalonians is that this is a young church, extremely young, extremely new, and nobody here at this church has the theological background that Paul does. They're all Romans. They don't know the Old Testament. You've got some people here that have some Jewish histories, but how many people have memorized the Old Testament like Paul? I'm thinking not many. So when Paul's talking about the word spreading rapidly, running rapidly, he's also actually referencing a psalm in which 
God says that his word will run rapidly. And you think about elsewhere in the Old Testament that his word will not return void. Paul is praying what God says in the Old Testament. He desires for the word spread rapidly. And the word did. Nearly 250 years later, that's A.D. 312, Constantine becomes a believer in Jesus, emperor of the Roman world. And immediately, in the next year, red tape, I'm sure, ends all persecutions of Christians. No more. After 250 years. Now, that may not seem like running or fast to you, but remember, this gospel that has gone forth was from an obscure Jewish man in the corner of the Roman world nobody wanted to visit to now all of a sudden being the national religion of the Roman Empire. Crazy. The word of God spread. Second, he prays that the word of God would run, spread rapidly, and be honored. Be honored. This idea isn't mainly that the word of God would go, but also that it would be experienced. The word here, honored, um, your translation, if it's different, may say glorified, is the word doxa, which we get our word for worship from. We have a doxology. It's a worship. And so Paul is praying, asking them to pray for him that the word of God, God would move through them such that God's word would spread rapidly. It would be honored. It would be glorified. It would be experienced. That there would be an existential experience for people as they receive this news, this gospel. And it interacts with their world religions. It interacts with their worldviews, their ideas about how things work. Paul wants them to pray that this gospel would permeate every area of their lives. It'd be honored. Not only that, the last thing that Paul says here, third thing, is that they may be delivered from wicked and evil people. Now, this word that is running and this word that is being experienced also gives us this idea of a runner finishing his course. Course. In the ancient world, in, in Roman times here, uh, one of the clearest things everybody had in their mind was the games, right? The Colosseum and the games. We still celebrate this with the Olympics. And the idea is that you have somebody who is running, they are, they are sprinting, they are on their course as fast as they can, and then they finally hit the finish line, they pull into the stadium, and the crowd goes wild, right? Adulation. Fame. Paul prays that for the Thessalonians, or asks them to pray for him. We want to finish our course well. And a part of finishing our course well is going to mean that we be delivered. I'm struck here that Paul doesn't just say that we would endure. He'll say endure in a second. But he does say that we would be delivered. Pray that we would be delivered from wicked and evil people. I think this is very instructive for us. When you're going through difficulty as a Christian, persecution in particular, it's not a bad thing to pray that it would end. It's not a bad thing to pray, Lord, will you please just end this for me? That's not a bad thing at all. 
Paul prays for it. He had people that were on him all the time from city. They chased him from city to city to city to city, trying to defame him, trying to block the advancement of the gospel. Paul says, please pray that that would stop. And we need to do that as believers. God has the power and authority to do, to do so. Sometimes it doesn't stop. And we see that in God's providential plan, his word still goes forward. But for us to be able to pray that evil, wicked people would stop the persecution is something that we need to do. It makes me think about uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, famous preacher, talking about the idea of prayer in this relationship of praying for things, maybe not getting the answer, maybe getting a different answer, but still God having the power to do it. He says this, long quote here, the theory of some is that prayer is useful to ourselves, but that it cannot be operative upon God. And much is said about the impossibility of the divine purposes being changed and the utter unlikelihood of a finite being affecting God by his cries. We also hold that the purposes of God are not changed. But what if prayer be a part of his purpose? And what if he ordains that his people should pray when he intends to give them blessings? Prayer is one of the necessary wheels of the machinery of providence. The offspring of prayer the offering of prayer, is as operative in the affairs of the world as the production of events, as the rise of dynasties, or the fall of nations. We believe that God, in very truth, hearkens to the voices of men. I love that, that prayer is one of the necessary wheels of the machinery of providence. When we look at things going on in our culture that are not Christian, do not share Christian values, and are opposed, in fact, evil, in fact, as Paul says, in relation to God, we can pray. And our prayers are the effectual working of God to accomplish his will. So we should pray. Paul wanted the Thessalonians to pray because he knew it would work. And he gives us this humble model to follow. What I find so encouraging about this is that I cannot change a human heart. There's no way. And none of you can. If you're married, if you've been alive long enough, you know, you can't change anybody. Nobody. You certainly can't change your enemies. But God can change us. That's exactly what Jesus does in the gospel, is transform us, a new heart, new spirit, so we can pray. So that's the first thing that Paul says, in the midst of persecution as believers, what do you do? How do you live? Pray. Second thing he says is that you need to know. You need to know some things about God and about yourself. In verse 3, but the Lord is faithful He will strengthen you and guard you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. 
The word that Paul just used to talk about evil and evil people or wicked and evil people, uh, one of those is clearly a moral comment. He says, these people morally, they're evil. There's no good moral position that they are doing this from. In fact, it is contrary to God. And then Paul says, uh, not only is that, are they the wicked, evil people, but then he says that they're animated here by the evil one. And when we think of uh, the evil one or the devil or Satan, in our day, we often have some kind of cartoon bubbles that start to pop up in your mind, right? Where you think like, oh, well, you know, it's the, the devil on one side of the shoulder or maybe he's uh, just, just this uh, comical figure that is included for a little relief or maybe he has some bad motives. Um, we do not, any of us, do not really think about the devil as we should. Because the way the Bible talks about the devil, uh, the serpent, the evil one, the accuser, is to say that he wants you to be destroyed more than you can imagine. C.S. Lewis, talking about uh, the belief in the demonic or devils, has a book that he wrote, and at the beginning of it he says this, it's called the screw tape letters. He says, there's two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. I think both of those things are going on now more than I can ever remember. It used to be for some time that the excessive and unhealthy interest was not that great, but it certainly is now. And he says either one of these two ways is a way to, to commit an error, to fail, to think biblically. Because when Paul says that we have an enemy, the evil one, he's saying that all of these issues that come up, all the persecutions they are driven from the evil one. And we certainly see this finished at the end of the story in Revelation that God will make all wrongs right and cast the devil into the lake of fire. So when we think about persecution, we don't need to just think about that person, right? Maybe it's a family member. They can't, for the life of them, understand why you would not affirm their gay marriage. In fact, they're very antagonistic about it, hostile. When those kind of things happen or other issues, what we need to recognize is there is a malevolent, evil force animating the world, animating all these things. In Ephesians, Paul talks about it this way, and you were dead, talking about you being one of those people, us being one of those people, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air. It's another way of talking about Satan. The spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts and were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. Before Christ, 
we were evil people. And in that time, we did Satan's bidding. We did his work. But now we're called to be sober-minded in relation to the devil. Peter also talks about this. Be sober-minded. Be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. This is something that's very common in the New Testament church. Persecution is very common. How do you deal with it? It's difficult. One of the main ways that we're to deal with it, as Paul says, is to know we have an enemy. You may have an enemy. The enemy is not mortal. The enemy is not physical. The enemy is not this person that you argue with and you get all worked up over. The enemy is the devil. And if we hold that in mind, we start to have a different view of the person that we're talking with. Like Paul, we start to see this person or this worldview or this set of values is actually coming from somewhere else. And I can't change them. I can't change the world, but God can. And so we also see that Paul says, you need to know that there's an evil one. You also need to know the Lord is faithful. What a great statement. The Lord is faithful. He will strengthen you and guard you from the evil one. I find it so comforting that in in this kind of context, in this kind of setting, where I feel uh, totally unequipped, right? Philosophy, theology, it's great. It does not change the human heart. God changes the human heart. And so when we're talking with people and we feel totally unequipped, maybe the, the, the arguments are just too complex for you. We have people that are super smart and can engage in all kinds of debates. I love it. I think that's totally needed in the Christian space. At the same time, there is a large value for us in just knowing the Lord will strengthen you. You're weak. Maybe you're uneducated. Maybe you're unprepared. Maybe you do a bad job in a conversation. The Lord will strengthen you. And he'll guard you from the evil one. So there's a confidence that he says, we have confidence in the Lord about you. That you're doing will continue to do what we command. So Paul says, you need to pray in the midst of persecution. You also need to know. You, know, you need to know you have an enemy. You need to know that God will strengthen you. He'll guard you. We also see that we need to endure. So Paul not only says you need to pray, but you need to uh, know you need to endure. May the Lord direct your hearts to God's love and Christ's endurance. Ending this section, Paul prays for the Thessalonians. Again, he's been doing this the whole time. First letter, second letter, he stops. He gives them instruction. Then he says, let me pray for you. (laughs) He can't help it, right? He loves them so much. So I'm just going to pray for you again. And his, his prayers here are always requests to God, aren't they? May the Lord direct your hearts to God's love. He's saying, um, he's saying two things at the same time. He's saying, may God do this. 
May he direct you to his love and endurance. At the same time, he's saying, be directed to God's love and endurance. He's talking two things at at the same time. And we totally need this. We need the Lord to do this. There's also an aspect of ownership in which we say, I need to do things to direct my own heart. I need to put myself in the position of God being able to change me and move me, make me like him. We see the same word for endurance, direct your hearts to God's love and Christ's endurance in Hebrews 12, talking about Jesus. No surprise. Paul has something in mind here. I think this is what Paul has in mind or something like this. In Hebrews 12, 1 to 3, he says, Therefore, since we have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us. Again, the same idea of the running and the race. Keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself. Why? So that you won't grow weary and give up. Whether Paul is the author of Hebrews or somebody else, the, the superintendence of the Holy Spirit is the same. This is how you endure as a Christian. You look to Jesus. That's it. It's not you have to get better education, more degrees. You need more experience to endure. Maybe you're just inexperienced. No, it's not that. You need to look to Jesus. You need to to meditate on him. You need to think about Jesus' work on the cross, going back to this central idea of the gospel. And some people, maybe this is the way that uh, you grew up. The way that I grew up hearing this passage in this verse was, okay, we need to think about Jesus. Then we need to look to Jesus. Jesus is the model. So go do it. I do not think that that is what this author or Paul is saying in Thessalonians. Rather, he's saying, if you look at Jesus long enough and you see what motivates him, What motivated him will motivate you. And what we see is that Jesus here, he endures the cross, he runs this race, and he finishes for the joy that lay before him. For the joy that lay before him. So when we're talking about suffering any level of persecution as a believer, this is not a gutted out mentality. Even worse, this is not a moral high horse mentality. This is not, I am suffering persecution because I am right and you are wrong mentality. This is, I will suffer. Why? Because I know there's a prize. I know there's a joy. I know there is a goal. And the goal here um, that the author of Hebrews is talking about is clearly God's people being together in God's presence. Any way you look at it. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. What is the one thing that Jesus did not have? 
You ever think about that? Jesus had everything in heaven. Condescended himself. Came to earth. Took on the form of a servant. Philippians says. Didn't have to do that. What's the one thing that he didn't have? You and me. Jesus, out of the overflowing love of his heart, came to suffer, live, die, and rise. Why? To bring us together before God. To have an eternal bride. This kind of motivation is different. This kind of motivation is not, there's a good model, follow that model. This motivation is, I want to be with him. Past all the persecutions, past all the difficulties, I just want to be with him. C.S. Lewis um, also talks about it this way. In this book, uh, from uh, kind of twist your mind around here, but it's one demon talking to another demon about how to tempt a believer and destroy them so that they won't enter into heaven. And he says this, Don't be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring, but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken. Still obeys. The thing that honors God in the midst of persecution or otherwise outside just suffering difficulty in life is when everything goes wrong, when people don't respond the way you want, and you still say, I'm going to obey. I'm going to do what God wants. That is the moment that C.S. Lewis talks about to say, that is the most dangerous moment for a demon. Because God is central in the believer's heart and life, and the gospel is in clear view. Jesus is worth it. So this morning, church, we can be encouraged that in the Father's will, persecution is a part of the plan. On whatever level that you experience, but those persecutions are to bring other people into the kingdom, yes, but so that our vision would be filled with Christ. Jesus is not asking us to do anything that he has not already done. He has gone before us, and he is our model, and he is our Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for Paul's instruction to the Thessalonians here to say that when we experience any kind of persecution, we must, must keep Jesus at the center. And Father, I ask that you would help us in these same ways, same prayers that we see that Paul wanted people to pray. Lord, we we pray that your word would go forward that it would run swiftly. The gospel would be advanced. It would be enjoyed. People would know you. And we pray that even before asking, Lord, would you deliver me? We pray that even before thinking about endurance here. God, would your word go forward? And we do ask, God, that you would give us the nimbleness of mind, 
the carefulness of conversation, the mental dexterity to be able to navigate new and different arguments and different worldviews as they come up, but to demonstrate to people the love of Christ. Lord, and we pray that by our life, our witness, that people would see how valuable you are. God, we pray that you would help us to endure. And pray all these things in your son's name. Amen.